This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Greetings, and everything is good, Nubians and others. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Dr. Cole. <laughs> hey, Professor Hunter. How are you? I am awesome. I'm awesome. I see you are out out in them streets. Yeah, this one was, uh, I didn't, well, I knew I was coming. I didn't know how. So I want to thank everybody oh. who helped me figure this out. Well, because I'm in La Florida, as the Spanish invaders called Florida, in uh, in Gainesville at uh, the 47th Annual Convention of the National Council for Black Studies. But I had to work out how to get here because it ain't easy to get to uh, the swamp, as they call it. I was going to say, Gainesville is not, yeah, have not, you ever done have you ever done it i've drove uh you know i used to have a home in florida for mm-hmm. a number of years so i would drive through <laughs> definitely a drive through joint i had someone um <laughs> helping me drive woke up in tennessee and i was Ooh. like oh wait we, what i think it was my mama i was like what how do we all right, pull over. Let's. let's yeah, because as, as the kids would say now, the young people would say the math ain't mathing, because that ain't even close. I could see maybe Georgia, because we near the Panhandle, but but not no, when, you, when you get far enough down, I think there's a, a a road, a highway you can take, and then you end up in Tennessee. For oh something. sure, if yes. you're going, yeah, yes. no question, no question. So I was like, uh, yeah, Atlanta's, you know, what four or five hours away, and then if you go east. You can come up through Chattanooga. It's not hard to get to Tennessee, but, but, but it's Tennessee. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's some work. No question. Anyway, I used to drive through Florida, drive down to Florida. I have a friend that lives in Jacksonville as well. And, Which is not far. No question. Right. And so um, I was in the Orlando area, loved Miami. And not now it's, uh, it's got a horrible governor. So it's just. It's but you funny. know, the beautiful thing about it is, I mean, and again, I can't thank you enough. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but the resonant chord that this is striking and that you have just been striking for years and is continuing to expand. It's so beautiful because while, you know, DeSantis gets a lot of public time in terms of mass white media, footnote, uh, the way that you read through the Trump thing, chef's kiss, no question. Oh, but in the, in, in, in the, yeah, no, you know, I just get, I but, try to get smart people on to talk about the things. I don't know. Nah, but you framed it, though. You framed it, including with Roy the other day, which was just great. I mean, but but as we know, in the governance formation, we know that things among us are very different than what gets reported. So the people in Florida, oh no, I, people, I, not, I, not even studying the people that man. <laughs> I, I had the, the honor this uh, week to talk with two um, junior high school young ladies uh from a private school in in Florida, their teachers a Nubian, and I didn't even know. So you know, people ask me to speak. I I, I will always talk to children. No question. So that's a yes. I didn't know who these kids were. I didn't know their relationship. I didn't know that their their teacher was a Nubian. I didn't know any of that. I just said yes. I popped in. They interviewed me for um. They they do a radio show. And uh, it was so cute that they had a little engineer. Come on now. It's like, I'm I'm about to press record. I was like, this is amazing. Come on now. In their school, their teachers have them reading every band book. So I'm like, okay, come on. This is how you protest. They're in Florida and they're reading every single band book. And we, we had a lovely conversation about, you know, our power and showing up, you know, as our full selves and resisting, you know, tyranny. And, you know, that's how it's done. Not this uh, fake uh, Second Amendment 
these fake patriots that are out here. Y'all are the ty- y'all are the tyrants. Y'all are the, you know, you are the terrorists. The people who are denying people, burning books, and you know, you're the terrorists. You're yes. the tyrants. You know, yes. yes. So when when they say the right to bear arms against tyranny, you're the tyrants. It's crazy. The tyrants, and ain't nobody paying no attention to them. I mean, really, this was a. Uh, this was, let me see if I have it. You know, I have it. This is the front page of yesterday's Orlando Sentinel. So a Sentinel, because I, I flew into Orlando. That was the only way to make the math math. And this was from earlier this week, Marching for Gun Safety. This is um, dozens of people would march for our lives. The youth gun, youth-led gun safety group formed after the deadly shooting at, of course, Marjorie Stone, Douglas High here in Florida, in Parkland, Florida protest outside the Capitol in Tallahassee on Thursday. And of course they got the puffer fish face because the blood is on his hands and they got him <laughs> marked as the devil. <laughs> this is the Orlando Sentinel, which is of course part of the Gannett chain with USA Today. And inside, and just I just mentioned this briefly because uh, here is our sister Monique Morell, who is of course the um, the Osceola Orange State Attorney, she's running for re-election because remember the sister that preceded her, they ran out of office because she said she was not going to uh, do the death penalty. So they pushed her out. This sister came in and she's moving for re-election even as the pufferfish and his goons are trying to go for her. But I love this particular line. She says that, um, of course the sister before her was Ayala, uh, Miss Ayala, who was the state's attorney. But says Worrell replaced Aramis Ayala, who decided not to run for a second term after she was stripped of nearly two dozen murder cases by then governor, the goon Rick Scott, who's now in the Senate, following the pledge stating she would not seek the death penalty. In February last month, Ayala was hired by Worrell's office as an assistant state attorney. Oh, they mad at these sisters. <laughs> so I'm just saying the resistance, but but the reason I let me end with this because as you say, they are resistant. And I'm I'm glad to hear these young people are reading these banned books and having this conversation with you because here in the local, meanwhile, these people who are so concerned about children and they march in, these people are protesting. Look at it. Florida passes on federal gun violence prevention funds. Huh. So these hillbillies are down here. While people are saying we got to stop this, while these children are talking to you about helping everybody live and how we going to study and craft, these people here are openly trying to foment an environment of violence. You passing on tax money that could be go while people literally on your steps. So yeah, the war continues, Prophet. I'm glad to hear you and these young people talking. Uh, Just a note to all of the journalists, stop calling uh, him and others the devil. They're lower demons. They're like Mephistopheles or... You know we're in we're in uh, Islamic Ramadan season. They're a jinn, maybe they're little tiny demons. They're they're annoying. They're not the devil. You know why are you elevating them to such a such a high seat? It's not. They're not. They're lower demons. They are. You know the ones that go into the pigs and then jump over. The, you know that that that's them. You know they don't even. You know we got to call them by name. But what's the verse? What's the verse, Prof? Uh, oh my God, I can. Jeremiah Wright, if you hear uh, Baba in the chat, please put this in Nubia. He talks, what was the the one where, where, where the demons invaded the pigs in the New Testament? I can't remember the verse. You better come with this way of knowing this morning, Karen. Uh, yeah, now I'm sounding like Danny Black, you and Danny talking. What was the, uh, thy name is something, not chaos. I'm thinking comedic. 
Legion, Legion. Legion. My name is Legion. That's Matthew uh, 8, 28. You better stop playing. Look, look I, here now. See, y'all y'all not going to try, Karen. <laughs> what was your friend, though? You know, I don't know chapter and verse. I just know scripture because the word is written on my spirit. Come on. You're, you know, those of you who can quote chapter and verse, that's nice. But that feels legalistic to me. I think the word should be. Let me stop. Okay, so. No, hey, no, no. The word. No, that's that's good. Because, again, you know, it's not. As well, as Angie Porter reminds us, you know, there's law. And then if we're going to talk Africana governance, there's protocol. And you are reminding us this morning of protocol. This ain't the big demon. Like you said, these are the imps, the little. And, and that's what it is. Yeah. So, so so these young people, they're actually reading the banned book list. All of them. That's what they're, and <laughs> you know, this is the role of educators, you know. Um, yeah, they, the laws can say whatever, but you can't snatch these children's minds and you can't stop them. I, you know, I was talking to my kids yesterday um, Yes. about, you know, tearing. I, I know a lot of professors, and we were talking about that too, stick to their syllabus. They got the same syllabus for the last 20-something years, and it's like <laughs> the yellow pages. We were talking, you know, they still got their notes from 20 years ago. And I'm like, the world has <laughs> changed. If you aren't changing up how you educate, if you aren't engaging your students, no matter what, class level they are in the art of thinking critically, if you're not pausing and sitting in this moment and doing what Dr. Carr does, open up the newspapers and Come on. talk about what is happening in their lives, that they, they can have an impact and you should hand in your teachers, Ooh. Uh, whatever, I don't even know, papers, I don't know. what the Certification, whatever, yes. Pencil, your teacher's pencil, because that's the job. So I applaud these, these teachers in Florida that are getting their students to read and open their minds all of and it was very diverse it was a little jewish girl a little black girl and a little asian uh producer i was like this is this is the world that we're in it was beautiful it was it is the world and the world and the world is here as you know because like say you lived here yeah how's it the uh you know flew into orlando and 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 the world is there i mean this is indigenous territory obviously it was and and now of course florida miami in particular they call it the capital of Latin America, I don't know that I would use that social structured language, but everybody, I came out and I said, okay, I got to get to uh, get Gainesville. So I already had the plan mapped out. So I'm asking the brother, where's the ride share joint? Because I done figured out how to get the cheap bus over here, which of Wait. course allows me to do some reconnaissance as well. And the cat told me he looked like my uncle, but when he opened his mouth, clearly this brother's from Latin America. <laughs> so we stand there talking, where you from, man? The Cubans, but not the Afro-Cubans, right? The Afro Venezuelans, everybody. I got in the, the, the car to get over to the bus station, and the cat there, he was Brazilian. I sat there, put a little couple of things out, and then heard him begin to lambast Lula da Silva because he won them Brazilians that goes with Bolsonaro. I don't care about your politics. I want to hear your opinion. But what I hadn't yet encountered directly was a white person. <laughs> and so, I mean, because, see, I don't know what DeSantis is telling the world, but these people here, these not your people. Now, that guy who took me over to the bus station, I know if he voted, he voted for DeSantis because that is the language. You know, here's a guy who left Brazil, who, who was telling me how much he loves his country, but his son and daughter could get a better education. His son's on full scholarship at a school out in California playing soccer. And he said, so he's a human being, 
But this country's nativism sells him on the idea that he's supposed to be against anybody else who's trying to come here that don't have those politics. We saw it play out last week at the World Baseball Classic when they were down here in Florida, the Cubans playing the uh, people from the United States, and in the, in, the stand, in the stands and outside the stadium, all these white Cubans and others protesting that Cuba's even playing, even though if you took all the Cubans out of Major League Baseball, half the damn rosters would collapse. And they wouldn't let all the Cubans who play in Major League Baseball play for the Cuban team. Otherwise, the United States might have got blown out. By the way, shout out to Japan. Shout out to Japan because they beat the United States in the finals. And in the last out of the last inning, in the ninth inning, Mike Trout, the white wonder boy from New Jersey who won the Little League World Series and now he's out there with the California Angels was struck out by his teammate who was playing for Japan, who was probably the best baseball player to ever put on a uniform. And finally, when they said, oh, this is the this is, this is is the dream matchup that we wanted to see. They said, he's the best uh, two-way player since Babe Ruth. The other announcer said, don't compare him to Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth only pitched and batted two years and he didn't play black players. At that point, the other guy had to be quiet as his man's got struck wait, out. Wait, this happened? <laughs> yeah, it happened a couple of days ago. The World Baseball Classic. No, I'm saying, who was that announcer? Oh, I, but I, it was just two white dudes. I forget. Wow. Okay. Come Jack, on, but... wake up, people. Come on, wake up. And this doesn't take anything away from you to tell the truth. No. The tell the story. Tell the whole story. I, I mean, and, and while we on Babe Ruth, very quickly, in two of the papers, the New York Times on Friday when I left, and also the USA Today, yesterday have you have you seen prof uh the new reggie jackson documentary oh, no I, I have it on my what, what to watch list for next you week. gotta watch it i only got about half of it through because obviously i was down here doing other things but uh you know i'm it, gonna watch it because you know he's a tourist anyway no question reginald martinez jackson whose daddy played in the negro leagues whose father in fact was a uh let me see he drove the bus he was the accountant and he played second base for his team in the Negro League. Shout out to Martinez Jackson, because I think it's Puerto Rico is where uh, that line of Reggie Jackson's family comes from. But only raise it because in that conversation, what I'm not going to say anything else about it. Maybe we talk about it a little bit later next No, I, you know, was while I was thinking about him when you were mentioning all this, and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch <laughs> this next week for next week for next Friday to talk about it. And yes. I said, well, we could talk about it next week. And then you bring it up. Well, that's because we're together. We, we, it's a mind mail. You know that. You know that. And, and, and also because it fits perfectly. I'm seeing if I could find it very quickly. If I, if I can't, I'll just mention it from what I remember reading. It was in the, uh, the New York Times yesterday. Anyway, I won't even go into it, the, the, the article, because it just reviewed it a little bit because it's like Reggie Jackson pulls no punches. But Jackson interviews his old teammates, Raleigh Fingers and them, Joe Rudy, um, what's the brother's name? I can't think of his name right now. Um, anyway, see, I was just coming of age. I remember being disappointed when the Oakland A's won the World Series. This would have been around 73, because then the Reds came back, and when everybody was cheering for Oakland, so I picked the other team in the South. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I didn't know enough. Now, as an adult, as I came of age, I realized that those Oakland A's, which had come from the Philadelphia A's, that's a story from a long time ago, Reggie Jackson and those black ball players on that by the blue from Louisiana, Reginald Martinez Jackson from Philly, Cheltenham outside of Philly. And then, of course, they were battling Charlie Finley. That's how them boys end up getting auctioned off. Remember Jackson following Kurt Flood? All this is in the documentary. As he, I'm coming to this, I won't get too deep into the documentary at all because, we, you know, obviously we want people to, to watch it so we had a conversation. But 
you know, ultimately Charles Finley dismantles that team. Anybody want to know why the Oakland A's have an elephant on their patch? That takes you back to the Philly days, story for another day. But he dismantles that team, starts selling off the ball players, and then that chef's kiss racist buoy Coon, now wherever else he is. Um, Coon, and this isn't in it, I'm just telling y'all the back story. Coon blocks him. Because remember, he tried to sell by the blue to the Cincinnati Reds, and that was my team because they had all the black ball players. Ken Griffey's daddy, you know, uh, George Foster, all them, Joe Morgan, all them. But Reggie Jackson had gotten out. Remember, he signs free agent with the Yankees, and that's when most people know him, wearing number 44. Why? The Hammer, Henry Aaron, who he interviews in the documentary. And so while the conversation is being held uh, about Babe Ruth at the World Baseball Classic, Jackson interviews, among many others, Henry Aaron in the documentary now on Amazon Prime with, with, with Carl Reggie. And I'll just share this one exchange very quickly because this is the one being reported in all the papers. And then when you see it in real time, it really resonates. He's asking about, you know, as he's nearing the home run record. This is 1973-74. And he's getting the death threats. And his daughter, Henry Aaron's daughter, that is, is, a, is an undergraduate at Fisk getting the hate mail. Y'all, you know, we've talked about that before. Jackson is sitting there. These are two elders. Shortly before Henry Aaron, of course, makes transition during COVID, he's asking him, you know, when they, you know, this, this was just a, you know, it was just a terrible time. How would you get through it? And they talk about Pete Rose, who Reggie Jackson also talks to at the beginning of the documentary on the phone because they're trying to figure out they're going to the, uh, to, to the call Hall of Fame for the induction. You know, Pete Rose had been banned from baseball for gambling because nobody ever gambled in baseball. Now that it's legal, of course. But anyway, and so he said, well, Ty Cobb, when he was breaking Ty Cobb record, ain't nobody say nothing. Henry Aaron said, I ain't never thought about Babe Ruth. And they sitting there, these are two brothers, you having a governance conversation. I ain't never thought about Babe Ruth. All these people that was against me and again, I wasn't even thinking about Babe Ruth. This is the same Babe Ruth they brought up at the World Baseball Classic a couple of days ago when Japan beat the United States and the number one wonder boy for the United States got struck out by the top Japanese pitcher who pitches and bats and who may be the ba best baseball player ever, certainly in the contemporary sense. And they tried to compare him to Babe Ruth. He's like, Babe Ruth, when they play no black players. And then, of course, the other irony in that, I won't get too down the world with Wormhole with uh, Babe Ruth, but the other irony. Black? Yes. Babe Ruth was black. Yeah. Was, but they say he was black, right? Because it, it, whether he was black or not, the taunt they used to launch from the other dugout, especially when they played the Detroit Tigers and the Georgia Peach, as they called him, Ty, Ty Cobb, used to call him in, the N-word, from the other, that's what they called Babe Ruth. But of course, Henry Aaron took care of Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth would never be the home run king again in white major league baseball. And he played no black players anyway. So, uh, and Babe Ruth, uh, Babe Ruth, of course, is from Baltimore, which we're gonna come back to in a minute when I talk about some of the people who are down here, who I'm really honored to be with today. But let me ask you, though, Prof. Definitely black. He's from Baltimore. He's from Baltimore. <laughs> He's like, even even if his parents weren't, he got blacked up real good in that, in that boy's home. <laughs> yes. Boy's home. It, yeah. boy's home. You, so, know, so, so, you know what I love about these documentaries that are out now, that the people who, are, who, who they're about are participating. It's their story from Tina Turner to Janet Jackson to this one. It's... It's important, right? We even get Zora Neale Hurston's actual footage and voice. And, you know, it's like these these documentaries right now are slapping. I like it. We are not. Now, y'all know now this is the conversation we're having in real time with everybody. We didn't rehearse this. 
Why you bring up Zora Neale Hurston? Because you know we ride up the road from Edenville. I damn near passed through there on the way on the bus. That's one of the reasons I wanted to ride. Have you been through there, huh? Uh, yeah, a couple. Of, I've been to the festival, and this week I had uh, the architect, Mr. Fly, who uh, was featured in CBS Sunday Morning, yes. talking about Eatonville's demise. This and, is why we yes, yes, and so I had him on. Uh, he's an architectural art. Um, what is he? Landscape architect uh, who who covers all of the former black towns that are now you know being decimated, and so he's you know talking about the land you know the land grab and how. Oh, this, you know, they set the rules, we follow them, and then they change them. And, you know, it's like we're chasing that football. That we're, we're America's uh, Charlie Brown. Yeah, we are. Literally. That's so funny. But, but, but we, we've stopped. We're going to stop kicking that football. We're going to stop kicking. Or if we're going to kick, we're not aiming at the football. We're not aiming at the football because we can see. <laughs> you better sip now. In fact, let me take my water. Here is a, uh, yes. my hotel lobby uh, lemon-infused water and take a sip with you. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no question. We're gonna stop kicking it there for as as uh, Amos Wilson, no, Bobby Wright, wrote in the psychopathic racial personality. He says the minute the bull figures out that it ain't the red cape, it's the matador. That's when the fight starts. So we're gonna stop tilting at red capes. That's what we're doing here. And 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 yes, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that whole Edenville conversation has been. There's been several panels here at NCBS talking about Rosewood, including one I'm gonna mention in a minute. And in the conversation, we started talking about Eatonville yesterday, sitting in a, in a panel with a sister whose mother and whose aunt, her mother's sister, uh, survived the Rosewood massacre. And she, man, this sister, and I'm gonna talk about her in a minute, just fantastic, just remarkable in terms of what she's doing. And so I, I asked the question about Eatonville. And so they started talking about the connections and the fact that they're fighting. And there's a young uh, group here, brother, they're making a documentary about American Beach, which of course was a black beach, A.L. Lewis, uh, who was in Jacksonville, of course. Um, they had this beach, he had started an insurance company. His granddaughters, two of them, one of them was known as the beach lady. Her sister was just at the White House this week. And that, of course, is Dr. Janetta Cole. <laughs> Janetta Cole's grandfather, <laughs> who's Janetta Cole's sister, is known as the Beast Lady for years. Shout out to uh, Carol Alexander, her husband, Howard Dotson. Uh, Carol, Carol Alexander, for many years, had the African American Museum here in Jacksonville, nearby Jacksonville. Uh, her, her husband, uh, Harold Do Howard Dotson, of course, was over to Schaumburg for many years. And they just gave uh, Dr. Cole a few years ago the, the award named for her grandfather. And so these young people are doing this documentary, and I'm thinking about it because as Joe Biden is putting this medal around Janetta Cole's neck for all her contributions, and she was over the African Museum of African Art, and she was Spelman College president, then went over to, to Bennett, the Bennett Bells in North Carolina. The governance formations that that raised are very important, and they're having a conversation now about how we fight back, and Eatonville is at the center of that conversation because as you discussed this week, this is the battle we are in a straight out fight but we are not without resources and as you've been really 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 connecting with i mean i've listened like man this is very powerful and of course here we have Nubia now i'll mention that in a minute too not only are we fighting back we're going to win we have an obligation to win it is our duty to win as asada shakur uh says and we're going to talk about shakur in a minute too so anyway i'm mean, just so much is going on and florida is alive with the fight like everywhere else yeah, I uh, just want to also um, Ramadan Mubarak 
All the Even, but yes, Ramadan, no question. Are in that season, and you know, I was thinking about you going to this conference, and I was thinking, are the our conferences and convening are they imitating uh, social structure uh, spaces, or are the social structure spaces imitating African spaces, and then we're imitating, you know, so it's like carbon copies of the carbon copy. I was wondering, like, the effectiveness of these, because I think oh. about you know, the early conferences and you have all of the books and everything, you know, I think about Booker T. Washington holding this conference and, you know, uh, Nanny Helen Burroughs, that's first place I've, I ran into her was at one of these conferences trying to get on the dais and then Booker T. Washington went letter. So she stood up and said what she had to say. And I just think about, you know, black people convening, are, are these conferences effective? Or are we imitating what we think organizations should look like i i don't know the answer to that but you're there you know again you all well this is how we know we're insane because that's literally what i talked about yesterday i, I talked about we talked about just like anywhere we are this is again why we have to have our own methods and why we're doing it the social structure always is who we are to other people. The governance formation question is always about who we are to each other. The ways of knowing that we just heard, even in the conversation we've had so far in these first 20 minutes or so, they affect, our governance formations affect the social structure. They have to, because social structures are not set in stones. Cultures bleed, things change, politics, economics, all of that. And when you resist oppression, it leaves great marks upon the oppressive format. And in order to retain its power, its violences have to shift. So you have to open up and accommodate some of this. Now, we know that this is an anti-Black society. It is a society anchored in whiteness. It is part of a world system that is anchored in, in whiteness a global capitalist system that is based in oppression and labor theft and all types of violences. Um, I heard you having a conversation. Who was that you were talking to uh, uh, last week, Prof? And y'all were talking about capitalism. And he said, you can't become a billionaire. Oh, son Michelle, the uh, Harvard yes. Geechee Gullah language yes. professor. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. And you were like, well, I'm still trying to get this so we can do these resources. I mean, yeah. which is... <laughs> which yes. is no, but I mean, he was making a point, um, yeah. and I I don't disagree with him at all. No, and I no, wonder, no. you know, all of the people Jay Z just crossed over the two point five billion, and I think I feel like people in their minds think that they're they're, they're doing good, you know. Sure. I'm gonna open a school. I'm gonna you know donate money. I'm gonna do all of this. Uh, Bezos' ex wife trying to give away every dime. And I feel like she didn't come up, come by it in a corrupt way. So she is literally trying to give away every single dime. She just uh, donated another hundred million, I think, last week. But, but did you see that? Did you see that? That's interesting. This this one that she's now got to open up to these smaller groups and everything. Did you see the threshold to apply though? No. You, you have to have had a budget of between a million dollars and five million dollars, which would be small in the philanthropic world. Oh, wow. And you have to have sustained it over a short term, maybe two, three, four years, whatever. And and reading the fine print, I just started laughing. Meaning what? You just excluded. A whole lot of people that actually could do the work and needed right. it. Right. So you get to you get to say, and, and not to say that these aren't, you know, but let's be very clear. I mean, color of change can apply. 
Right. But you know, and while and while they're down, while the pufferfish down here talking about and it, uh, with the whisper, another article in the Sentinel yesterday talked about the fact that anti-Semitic uh, attacks are up. But uh, I mean, you know, but when anytime you say Alvin Bragg is a Soros, Soros, we hear what you're saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We not, you know, stupid, but. Soros did give money to Color of Change, which said it was going to endorse and support "quote unquote" progressive DAs. Alvin Bragg got about half a million dollars out of that money, but Soros was one among many others who fund. But my point is this: they could probably apply for Mackenzie Scott, but the people like those children that interviewed you yesterday, they can't apply if they got a little neighborhood group. I mean, this is the thing; it gets funny. What baked into it is this notion that you know you should be a good steward of money before I give of course, it to you. Of course, of course, of you course. Know, which you should be a good steward of money. That said, though, the, the notion that somehow if I haven't reached that height that I'm not a good steward of money. So two things should be happening. We should be working to be good stewards of money. But at the same time, we should not, uh, you know, bypass people who have not made it to that position. Just like the whole reparations conversation. Well, what are you going to be? If we give everyone $5 million, we're going to be broke because they don't know what to do with money. And I was like, that's not even a point. The point is the money's owed and is due and it and it, and you should give it anyway, you know, and who are we to police? Like, it, you know, it feels very, it's interesting, you know, how judgmental we become all of a sudden when there's the possibility of something, you know, well, they're just going to spend it on, why do you care? It's right. old. It's old. If they spend every single dime that is given, it is owed to them to do that with. And and as far as you're, you know, talking about with Mackenzie Scott and all that, all these young, young little organizations that are actually grinding it out, whether they have the acumen or not, deserve the right. Like my 20 something year old self got a million dollars. I didn't know what to do with it. I spent it all on stuff that I thought was. You know, it was a 26-year-old know what to no do with house. You know, but I spent it in a way I thought was right. And now in my in my age, I know what to do because I've done it. I've been through it. That's we need right. to at least make room for people to learn and make mistakes with That's this right. stuff. And the money goes back into the system anyway. So what you mad about? That's right. right well, well, is it a mistake? Is it a mistake? In fact, the Egyptians, again, as, as Wario would teach us, and I ran to a couple of his students down here, by the way. Uh, a lot of Nubians down here. We'll come to that in a minute. But uh, uh, as he teaches us, there's a phrase in the ancient Egyptian language, Medinetia. People say, why y'all study Egypt? Here's an example. There's a phrase when they talk about those who have reached elderhood that translates as my heart of different ages. We've talked about that. Uh, the point is that when you live life, the lessons you learn, quote unquote, earlier in time, you put into practice later, but you never stop being that person who had those earlier experiences. Now we are narr that's narrated in the West as mistakes. You learn mistakes. No, no. You live your life. And when you reach an age, wherever that age is, whether you're 20, whether you're 26, whether you're 36, whether you're 106, every stage of life, you have all those experiences before you. And the Egyptians, of course, Eve is the word for heart, but it really translates badly into English as heart and mind. The, the whole idea that your heart and your mind, your, your, your thinking process is your full being. Your 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 Eve, your heart of different ages means the younger Karen Hunter got that money and learned what to do. So it wasn't a mistake because here we are in a process where that you say, okay, we're not going to do this. We're going to do this. Why? My heart of different ages. I've been that person. I've been that person. And you then connecting to the youngest helps them because their heart of different ages means they're experiencing you in a way where they don't have to learn it the way you learned it. This is why we have to have these intergenerational conversations. And the last thing I'll say on it very quickly is that 
using an Africana studies approach, we now discard literally the concepts, literally the language of a narrow way of knowing that forces us into thinking that is too narrow, that really makes us move against our interest. So instead of asking, what do we do with money? This conversation actually came up yesterday in the conversation that we were having. Uh, Malefi Asante, of course, one of the founding figures in not only the National Council of Black Studies, but who was the chair of the Department of African Studies for many years, now Africology, at Temple University, my old teacher. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation we had. I was glad to see Dr. Asante here. And I'll see him again today when I go over. Um, he was in conversation with us at the plenary we had, and I'll talk about that plenary in a minute. And he and one of his former students, who's now his colleague at Temple, uh, Ife Tayo Flannery, were talking about this language. And uh, she was talking about money and how you know we have, we have to have access and this kind of thing. And Dr. Asante responding to her, and it's something I said earlier about taking the, the conversation away from money and economics and placing it in an Africana framework really said, you know, this isn't about money. In an African-centered perspective, an Africana studies framework, it's about relationships. Why? What do you mean? He said, you know, Sante gave this example. He said, I could sell you these oranges at a price point. And then the next person comes where I don't have a relationship with them, I can sell it to them for a different price. Because it's not about the money, it's about what's my relationship with you. And anybody who's traveled into places where African people are, I've experienced this myself. It's so interesting, many times, anytime I go into the continent, I mean, the first time I was in the continent, in 96, I was in Ghana, and we sitting there having a relationship with these kind of Africans at the Makona market in Accra. Now this is a tourist market. We Americans, meaning what? We are Africans from the U.S. But we didn't come in there like, how much buy? How much buy? Why? We Africans. We got to have a conversation. And so in having a conversation, we're starting to connect. We're seeing where we're different. We're seeing where we're the same kind of thing. And so we just laugh. We've been in there now for hours. Now, here come these German tourists. Now, we got a price on things we were buying from these Ghanaian sisters that will allow them to make their money. But they couldn't give us the price anymore that they would just normally give out the top. First of all, you don't pay for nothing if you're in a country where people are human beings without having a conversation. In the West, they call it bartering or haggling. No, 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 we're not haggling. We're having a conversation. We're building a relationship. So we're sitting there. Here come these Germans. I never forget. The sister says to us, one of the sisters, she says, ah, your people, huh? I said, no, they from, where are they from? The accent. We're hearing them because they're coming up. She said, watch this. Uh, how much for this? She said the price. They put out the money and paid, kept going. We laughing. Why? Because you don't have a, you don't even try to build a relationship. So they charged the, I don't know. Sister was like, we made up the money we sold you for the price. <laughs> no, it's not about the money. It's about the relationship. You didn't even stop. You asked. They told you some exorbitant ad price. Y'all know anytime y'all traveling the continent, how much? And I'm just going to use dollars because many people here, everybody knows you train. How much? $50. You say, I'll give you two. Oh, <laughs> then you start talking. Man. Now it might end up at $6. It might end up at $10, but it ain't going to be no $50. Here come the people who don't want a relationship. How much? $50. Mm. Here. They're laughing. So Asante's point yesterday was 
and we were talking about this, instead of calling it economics, instead of talking about finance and money, talk about those things, but put them in a governance conversation, in a ways of knowing conversation. So what we're really talking about is relationships. Mackenzie Scott is doing, is doing good. Glad she's giving out that money. And I'm sure she's been advised by people who may have said some of these things. But at the end of the day, you want people to be good stewards of money. No, do you want relationships? What are you trying to do? Right. And you're not talking in the world of relationships. But you actually you are. But you're talking in a social structure concept of relationships. Let me see your books. Let me see your accounting. I was impressed. Now, she wanders around somewhere like nearby Jacksonville. And she stumbles into a room like a hundred some years ago when the Johnson brothers, who were from Jacksonville, same as Janetta Colton, her sister and family. And they sing and lift every voice and sing. And Mackenzie Scott lets a tear roll down her eye and decides she's going to give a million dollars to the choir. She's going to break all the rules of the one million to five million threshold. Why? Because now I got to relate. I heard these kids. But what, y'all don't have a, a fr- You know what? Let me get you, you, and you, and now her accountants come in, her structure people come in, her in, her NGO, I start saying NGO in the international sense, her nonprofit people come in, and we'll build you a structure, and then we're going to give you some money. Why? Because I sat there, and when I heard God of our weary years, I thought about my teacher, Tony Morrison, and I, at Princeton, and I, I, we got to give them money. Why? Because see, all the rules go out the window when you ground it in a different way of knowing. But she can't do that right now. Well, she, of course she could. Why, why some of this money go to somebody that, that don't meet that threshold? Because she know them. Right. Th- this is how we have to think differently, of course. But uh, it's interesting because that's the rule that's applying right now. And Prof, a minute ago, you, you raised the, the, the idea of effectiveness and impact. And are we, are we mimicking these Western standards? This is literally, this is literally the history of the particular institution uh, and formation that, that I'm a part of. Um, I came down because I had made a commitment to the leadership. That's my little badge, Greg Carr, board member. I'm very happy about it. This is my second time on the board of the National Council of Blacks for Black Studies. Um, the first time I was a graduate student. This was in the early 90s, 1991, 1992. And so I rejoined the board. Um, Wow, 30 years later, um, 23 years at Howard, 30 some years teaching. Um, I was very happy. Um, Valerie Graham, the president of the National Council of Black Studies, sister at, at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, my man, Amakar Shabazz, who is at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, who had first reached out, and the entire board of the, um, the, the National Council of Black Studies. I was honored to be back in here. And, you know, over the years, I've been here many times. In fact, the reason I ended up at Howard was, I guess this was back in the year 2000 at our meeting in North Carolina, the UNC Charlotte. I'm going to talk about that in a minute as well. Um, I was with Prof. Uh, it was me and on a panel just talking about books and collecting and discussing books with, of course, the great E. Curtis Alexander. As we talked about, y'all got to go back in the, in the archive. And we had like a hour, 15 minute panel. And we're in a room, we have a conversation. The thing went from an hour and 15 minutes to the rest of the afternoon because we getting ready to leave. Like, no, 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 no. You know, and I'm talking to him, he talking, we having a conversation. At the end of it, several hours later, a brother came up and said, I couldn't leave. 
people was leaving eight other panels and coming over here. So that's, you know, y'all had to have them at workshops. It happens at conferences, right? There are the things that are going on in the panels. There's the conversation in the hallway. Some people never make it into the panels. And then there are some panels where people come and just wrecks the schedule. This was a schedule wrecking, wrecking conversation. And over the arc of several hours, all these kind of old heads and people who kind of in the know came into the room. Nate Norman was there. And they, we, we all in there talking. Kathy Adams was there. This is years ago. The brother came up and gave me his card. He said, man, you need to be a Howard. That was Russell Adams, who was now in his 90s, who was the chair of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. And I'm like, well, you know, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about Tuskegee. He said, no, you, you got to come to D.C. And he gave me his card. And a couple of months later, I interviewed. And that's where I got the job coming to Howard. But it was coming to the to NCBS. And I was with Curtis Alexander. Where, does, where am I going with this? The National Council for Black Studies is the organization that was founded in 1976 that leads to, in fact, let me just pull out the program and show you all. I think I, here we go. <laughs> so funny, yesterday, talking to, <laughs> these people are crazy. Let me just, I say crazy in the best sense. They was like, when y'all be in conversation and you be at your house and you be like, okay, where's that book? And then you find the book. It's like, how you find all them books at one time? I said, well, we, I was thinking about them, so I pulled some books over here. And said, no, you don't never miss the book. I said, man, we were just, but anyway, because all these people are either in narrative and nuclear, and, and nuclear, but they watch on Saturdays. So many of them listen through the week to Sirius and listen to you, Karen. I mean, I got stopped so many times <laughs> since I've been here. Oh my God, my mother never misses Karen Hunter. I'm always listening to Karen Hunter. People coming up, there's a young guy, white dude, he's a Nubian, who is uh, at, uh, where is he? At? Antioch College. He's going to the University of Missouri, uh, out, Lord have mercy, Columbia, Missouri. So we talked about that before. And he's doing his graduate work. He's a member of the National Council of Black Studies. He said, I'm a Nubian. <laughs> So we start talking about his dissertation work. He's looking at intellectual work among African people in the 19th century. And he said, well, my whole thing shifted as this space was created. And I joined this space and I never missed Saturday. He said, I'll see you Saturday morning. I said, oh, we'll, be, well, I'll be together. So he ain't here right now. He said, um, he's working on the 19th century. He said, but I'm reading Jacob Carruthers now. I'm doing all this work now. The question you raised, Prof, you know, are we mimicking? NCBS was founded at a time when the war for black studies was in full bloom. When the students had taken over administration buildings, when people demanded black studies in the 1960s. And the conversation that was being had then was not polite. The students said, we need these institutions to feed us. Now, this was a thrust that had come out of the black institutions. This is something I talked about yesterday. And as a result, the demand was that we make the institutions we're paying tuition at, talking about the universities at this stage, respond to the demands of the times. This is 1968, 1967. We go back, we, we've talked about Tuskegee a little bit, some folk here from Tuskegee, in fact. We talked about the, the, the student movement at Howard University. I said I had a conversation, a little bit of a conversation with Dean Felicia Rashad about that, you know, because she was in school at the time. She and her sister, Debbie Allen, 
uh, Debbie Allen actually in the building for the protest. Felicia Rashad trying not to be in the building. Her daddy called up from Houston looking for both of them. So it's like, where is where your sister at? She in the building. She don't want to tell on her. I mean, this is the thing going on. Then they have the Tour to Black University Conference the following year, in November of the following year. James Turner is there, who just became ancestor. We talked about him, many others. And out of that is birthed the idea that the HBCU should be Black universities, meaning what? They're not Black universities now. They're imitation white universities in structure. Even as students and some faculty, Nathan Hare, uh, before that, people like Sterling Brown, uh, people like William Leo Hansberry, Carter Woodson, for the year and a half he spent at Howard, and so many others are trying to pull them into this Blackness by whatever way you want to define it over the arc of over a century. We're having that conversation yesterday as far back even as W.E.B. Du Bois at the Atlanta University, which is now, of course, Clark Atlantic University. Shout out to Clark folk who are here as well. But the idea is that this tension exists. Can you inhabit a structure that was not built for you, that is built actually to be anti-you, in this sense, the university, and, and overflow its boundaries, so much so that you can transform it to serve for your purposes? This is the tension. So by the early 1970s, you've got some folk, and I'm going to mention the central figure I want to just mention for a few days, a few moments today, like this sister right here, Bertha Maxwell Roddy. Now, I put this is one of the books I put in my bag to bring down here because I love paying tribute to this sister. This is Sonia Ramsey's book on her sorority deltas, but uh, Bertha Maxwell Roddy, who is the founder of the National Council of Black Studies. She was at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She was at her alma mater, shout out to Kathy Adams, of course, at Claflin, uh, who, uh, of course, is a Nubian, probably in here right now, working on her cat. I don't know how she puts out all the hours of the day. But uh, Dr. Maxwell Roddy is an alumna, as is Kathy Adams, of the great Johnson C. Smith University there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Go Bulls. At any rate, she goes back to um, Johnson C. Smith as a, an administrator, but doesn't last long. Why? You know, Sonia Ramsey talks about the patriarchy, talks about the pushback. There's also, and this is to the point, and that's part of it, actually, this pushback against change, this pushback against thinking differently, because Sonia uh, Ramsey, as she writes, Bertha Maxwell Roddy was really anchored in K-12 education. She was a principal at the lower grades, a teacher, and she was deeply anchored in community at that time. And persist, persisting. She said, all of this stuff we're doing in teaching and learning has to start with and be grounded in the community. All these institutions have to come into our community. So when she fights at the University of North Carolina Charlotte after she leaves John C. Smith and then is hired at the University of North Carolina Charlotte, shout out to everybody who's working in white spaces who are going to try to transform those spaces, at least enough for us to work. They actually managed to get an Afro-American studies program. And she develops the program, not with college administrators alone, including many people who were openly opposed to it initially, because she's really, her political genius really, really can't be overstated. She's doing it with community. So she's doing community classes. She's bringing those classes and those who are designing those classes along with her to inform what goes on at UNC Charlotte in 1969, in 1970, in 1971, when she travels to Atlanta, Georgia, to meet with the great Vincent Harding, who, of course, we read in Nubia, we discussed on Office Hours and, and gone through a little bit of his work in, in terms of There is a River. Vincent Harding by then had started the Institute of the Black World in Atlanta. 
where you are actually training and, and teaching people. One of the early folk who took residence at the Institute of Black World, of course, Janetta Betts Cole, who was there as a young academic, along with Joyce Ladner, and along with people like CLR James, who came through, and Walter Rodney, who came through, Howard Dodson, who managed the Institute of Black World in Atlanta. What, what Professor uh, Maxwell Roddy comes and says, I want to do some work with the Institute of Black World, and I'm bringing my students from UNC Charlotte. And Vincent Harding presents a bill for $2,000. So what you doing? He said, if you're at a white institution, you have the ability to pay, and we need you to pay. So to sustain this for the people who don't have the ability. Think of it almost in that threshold moment as perhaps uh, a uh, Mackenzie Scott moment. But the relationship, what does Bertha Maxwell Roddy say? She says, yeah, I work at UNC Charlotte, but I'm here representing Black people. And now we don't got that kind of money. I'm fighting for my life with these young people and we they ain't giving us a budget like that. What does Vincent Harding do? He says, oh, well, come on in. And they build a relationship that lasts the rest. Of course, Vincent Harding's life, he becomes an ancestor. But in developing that, they then are now fighting for curriculum. They're fighting in both worlds, the white world and the black one, the governance formations based on relationships that they're developing. Well, a couple of years later, there are enough Black Studies programs around the country, not many at the HBCUs, ironically, because HBCUs, as I said, from the Du Bois moment in the early, I'm sorry, the late 19th century, we talked about that yesterday, the Atlanta University Studies, we talked about that here in Nubia, through the early 20th century, where you've got these little bursts, Carter Woodson teaching African-American uh, Black history, Negro history, as they would call it, at Howard, uh, William Leo Hansberry, as we talked about a couple of uh, weeks ago and, and many times teaching African history, having conferences in the 1920s and 30s at Howard University. All over the country, you have these little outposts and bursts of Black folk doing things at these schools. But the pushback, of course, because these curriculum, even as you've got Black students and increasingly more Black faculty and eventually Black presidents at these places and administrations, still there is a whiteness gloss that prevents this from blooming. So by the time you get to the 60s, the students who are coming to all these schools, HBCUs primarily, and then the white schools, HWCUs, in the wake of the end of U.S. apartheid, they're pushing back, saying, you got to transform, transform. And at HBCUs, they're saying, we, these must become black universities. People say, they are black universities. No, they're not black universities. These Negro colleges, they're black-faced white universities. And so in that fight, Bertha Roddy, who, was, who started at the HBCU, couldn't pushed the way she wanted because they they hired her at Johnson C. Smith to transform the curriculum. So she does this big study and she's talking with everybody. She said, here's what we're going to do. And they was like, said, you know what? Deuces. She goes, <laughs> Deuces. She goes to UNC Charlotte and does the same work. Her work doesn't change. You understand? So when you asked that, that question, Prof, and when you made that observation, we didn't rehearse this. This is the, this is the conversation of the times, what, what the Germans might call and Martin King borrowing from it, the zeitgeist, except it never goes away. And we are engaged in a Wahemi Mesu, the borrow from the Egyptians, a repetition of the birth. We are returning to the thing that we haven't resolved yet, so we must return to the foundations and promote it forward. Bertha Roddy, having grounded herself, having established this program with her comrades at UNC Charlotte, having connected through governance formations and relationships with people like Vincent Harding and Institute of the Black World, and people nationally says, we need to come together and put together an organization that does several things. Number one, it creates a certification process for Black studies in the United States. Meaning what? 
a lot of these units are what Cornell West used to call and laugh about. He said, you know what black studies programs are at white school? What are they, Cornell? He said, they're crisis management units. What does that mean? You got a rowdy Negro on your faculty sending them black studies. <laughs> you got some disgruntled students, give them a black studies class. In other words, you're trying to manage crisis. You don't want that stuff to spill over into the other disciplines. Puffer, puffer fish, you're done, baby. Because the kids reading the books, you say. In fact, give me the band list. Why? Because I need to read the books. Which books do you not want me to read? I'm going to start with those books. As the famous uh, uh, story goes, when Martin Luther King was on the, uh, on the billboard going through the South because these racists had put up billboards saying, here's Martin Luther King at communist training school. That was Highlander, of course, Highlander School in Tennessee. And, and the white students who joined the civil rights movement, they riding down the highway in the South. They in Alabama, they in Mississippi, they in Tennessee. And they see this billboard and they got Martin Luther King sitting there at the same place where Rosa Parks and Septima Clark and Ella Jo Baker and all them was it. Uh, Miles, uh, started called Miles Horton, uh, the white dude who would ran Highlander for years and Highlander is still there, of course. Think about Ashley Henderson and others in Tennessee. They going down the highway, they see this billboard, see this bill. Finally, one of the white kids said they want other one. These two billboards are so stupid. Now, if you think in social structure, you know what he's going to say next. But if you think in governance, you're thinking different. He says, these, these billboards are so stupid. Why? Because, I mean, they tell you there's a communist training school, but they don't tell you how to get there. The whole point <laughs> is that the banned book list, these are the books that are banned. Really? Which one? Boom, 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 boom. Thanks. What you doing? Don't worry about it. I'm going to read these books. And then see, y'all got unintended consequences. What? Paulo Freire would call the surplus value of knowledge. This is what overflows the boundaries. The question you asked, Prof, the observation you made, are we imitating these white institutions? At the center of that, the example of Bertha Maxwell Roddy and the National Council of Black Studies sits at the center of it. So she's in a white institution. She's in conversation with people who are white institutions, James Turner at Cornell, um, Nick Nelson at Ohio State University, one of my old teachers who's now ancestor. John Bracey is by the up of UMass. So many people, different places. Most of these men, which is why Sonia Ramsey's book is so important, because these governance formations, we still got to grapple with the questions of gender. We got to grapple with these questions, but we don't need to grapple with them with other people in our ears. There's a different conversation. Now, nah, we not know, because there ain't no such thing as solidarity between black women and white women. First of all, who is the we when we talk about black women? Second of all, before we even get there, you know we ain't got no, no natural solidarity. Why? You're on the other side, and you, we gonna have a conversation, but you know we have to have a conversation first because we got to create a we. So as she's doing this, she's also talking with independent black institutions like Vincent Harding, Institute of the Black World. So she calls a meeting. What is this? We're gonna have a meeting, why? Because we got to have some formation that is not controlled by anybody else, controlled by us, that certifies when you're doing black studies. Because these crisis management units could be doing anything. Ron Walters is up at Brandeis before he ends up coming to Howard. All this stuff is going on. Uh, Nathan Hare started the first recognized formal unit at San Francisco State University, 1968, 1969 because he got run out of Howard and then they, you know, the Negro College ain't ready for that. So you have Muhammad Ali on campus, all this kind of thing. He's now in the West Coast. We got to have a meeting. Okay, Abdullah Kalamat, then Gerald McWhorter at Fisk, you know, coming out of Atlanta when Sam Jackson was in school, they took over the trustees, held them hostage, the Morehouse trustees, they put Sam Jackson out of school. You know, he tells that story, of course, because he was there and was in it. Now, she calls the meeting at UNC Charlotte and they come together. 1975. What are we going to do? 
we got to certify when it's black studies and when it's not. Why? Because otherwise this thing's going to get out of hand. And the language you use now, I would say social structure. We got to do because we got to create a governance formation. The other thing, which is really the thing, this thing ain't about the university. It's about us. I'm a K-12. I was a K-12 principal. I know how to make the trains run on time. Almost all of y'all are brothers. The sisters she worked with the UNC Charlotte and a few brothers, they had put the program together. She said, I, she used to, in fact, she used to, you know how sisters do, you know how we do, all of us in some ways, when you signify it. She said, I'm not a scholar, but of course you're a scholar. But see, you, what you try to do is deflate the balloon and people will come in here. I'm so-and-so, I'm this, I'm that, as KRS would say. So it's like, no, I'm not a scholar, but what she was is a crack administrator. I know how to make the trains run on time. There's a gloss of that high intelligence and that heart of different ages through experience as some of Karen Hunter in, in, in Birth of Maxwell Roddy. In fact, I know how to make the trains run on time. See, y'all really, I don't know if you never see, oh, you ain't never made the trains run on time. In other words, you ain't never met this guy. Oh, you gotta get this budget, you got five dollars, they gonna make it strike so it looked like fifty thousand. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, but you never got three dollars and lost three dollars and twenty-five cents. Okay. Well, I did. So I had that experience. My heart a different age. Look, so she calls this meeting and all these dudes is in here. These are the heroes. Many of them I was blessed to be, you know, to have as Jackness, James Turner, Nick Nelson, all of them, William King, who was uh, succeeded her as the first president, because then they meet later in the year because she's able to build a connection, a relationship with a brother at ETS, which is, of course, Educational Testing Service in Princeton, New Jersey. These are people who write all the tests that people used to have to take. And they increasingly don't have to take the SAT, the LSAT, the MCAT, the GMAT, all them, you know, they have a meeting. And at that meeting, she runs the meeting. And to hear James Turner and them tell the story, they're in the meeting, because we got to create something that we get this accreditation. It's got to be about K-12 and community, and it's got to protect us at the universities. We got to have a rapid response team. Okay. So if they're talking and debating, she's like, okay, and then we're going to do this, and now we're going to do this. Leonard Jeffries tells this story. He's still around, because Leonard Jeffries was in those conversations. Of course, he ended up at City College for many years as the chair of Black Studies there, as the students demanded it. Leonard Jeffries, Leonard Jeffries would tell you, he'd say, you know, while we was in there arguing and debating and talking about philosophy, and it's going to be nationalist, it's going to be Marxist, you know, this was the battle of the 70s, the Marxist versus the nationalist, the Pan-African. It's like, man, brilliant stuff. Bertha Roddy's like, yeah, I'm not a scholar, but... uh." Okay, by four o'clock, we got to have a framework. <laughs> I guess she's keeping her while she's in those conversations. She's also thinking we got to have a deliverable. And what happens as they're in the debate and discussion? And Bill King tells the story, who ended up being a president of NCBS. They're in a meeting talking about what they should name the thing after they've worked out the basic structure. And he's doodling on the pad. They got a couple of names. One's going to be on accreditation, the other one's going to be on Black Studies. And he says, how about we call it the National Council for Black Studies? Silence. All right. That's it. And that's when NCBS was born. Very important. Said, Bertha Maxwell Roddy becomes the first president. Uh, of course, because she the one made the call. She is literally the founder. You know how people say, I'm the founder, but then it's like other people involved. Yes, there were many other people involved, but the consensus is Bertha Maxwell Roddy the founder of the National Council of Black Studies. Here we are in our 47th year with this tension. Prof, you framed this whole thing today because we are literally of a social structure framework called a university. We are in a social structure framework called a university. But the tension is, can we move it completely to end the social structure 
but not of it. How do you build a formation? And that is the tension that has always framed our lives as African people in this criminal enterprise. And it's also framed in terms of this academic practice of what we call black studies or Africana studies or African diaspora study, all the names, whatever you want to call it, Africology, as it is called. The tension is, can you do it here? So in those early meetings, there is a motto that becomes the motto of the National Council of Black Studies that is framed by the brother now we know as Abdullah Kalamat, who has written two very important volumes on the history of black studies and the future of black studies came out in the last couple of years. Abdul is like academic excellence, there's the university and social responsibility. That's where he tries to resolve the ten tension. This dialectic, as he might call it. I get, I laugh at myself because he's part of that black nationalist versus the Marxist and the conversation. And they say, that's good. This is, uh, and I'm going to talk more, more about the history of NCBS. If you want to know, you can always look it up. I'm going to mention this, though. This is the program, the 47th Annual National Council for Black Studies Conference. It's here at the Hilton University uh, of Florida Conference Center in Gainesville, Florida. Shout out to General Edmund Pendleton Gaines, who, <laughs> Army man, that's who Gainesville is named for. He helped uh, displace the indigenous people of this region because, you know, we now here in Seminole territory. We down here at a place that was a tributary of the so-called Trail of Tears. We down here where if you say the name Andrew Jackson, you better be careful who you're talking to because you might get your whole wig snatched back. Why? Because this is indigenous people's land, as, as Malefi Sante reminded us yesterday, because he's not he's from not far from here. Now, and I'm like I say, y'all know how you woke up and ended up in Tennessee Prof, as you say, but there are roads that would take you there, but very close to here is of course the panhandle of Florida, and above that is South Georgia, Valdosta, Georgia, which is where um, Lefia Asante began life in 1942 as Arthur Lee Smith Jr. And, uh, you know, my heart of different ages. He's still a Southerner by training and, and by experience. So he, he talked about that yesterday. This is indigenous people's land. It's named for Edmund uh, P. Gaines because Gaines was a loyal soldier like Oliver Howard and Clinton B. Fisk and so many others. Sammy Chapman Armstrong, the founder of Hampton University. But Ed Gaines uh, fought in the so-called Revolutionary War. He fought against uh, the British, and then he stayed in the military. He fought in the so-called War of 1812, and then he fought in as a participant on the periphery and sometimes at the center of what he called the Seminole Wars. So he was one of Andrew Jackson's uh, loyal soldiers, and, and his, his claim to fame is that he tried to negotiate but with the Spanish who were in Florida at the time, because remember, uh, the United States don't get, don't call, quote unquote, annex Florida until 1824, and it doesn't become a state until 1845. Same year as Texas. In fact, Gaines actually sent support to them racists that set up the state of Texas. Interestingly enough, Sam Houston, Steve Neff Austin and them, but them oh, this, this, I mean, Gerald Horn had to walk through that history because it gets complicated. But in the social structure, it's always complicated. Why? Because they consider Edmund Gaines, like Oliver Howard, as the good army guy. He don't want to displace the Native Americans. He wants to negotiate with them. He wants to kind. Of, he don't want to displace the the uh, the Spanish necessarily. He wants to negotiate them based on the treaties, based on the laws. He doesn't. In fact, he several times punishes white settlers who encroach upon Indian lands, and therein lies the farce. All the land is theirs. So when you sell these white settlers, y'all can't come over here because we. Why? That's based on the fact that you moved them in the first place. So Gaines got blood on his hands too. Long story short, we're in Gainesville. Name for him. 
named for him. We are deep behind the cotton curtain, <laughs> deep behind the cotton curtain. The Gainesville, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Gaines was a loyal soldier. As I said, he the one who arrested Aaron Burr, arrested the vice president of the United States on the uh, orders of the president. Now, who was the president? Oh, yeah, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I'm so glad the way you framed whether Trump's going to get arrested or not. He said, why? You see how they wasted all that time in that social structure media? Why are we talking about you and Roy, man? Roy Wood had me cracking up. Of course, Roy Wood, a graduate of downstream Tallahassee, the great Florida Agricultural and Mechanical State College for Negroes, Florida A&M, and doing a brilliant job, as you all talked about on yes. the daily show. <laughs> you know? I love that, brother. I oh, I know you do. It comes through your pores. It's a beautiful to hear y'all talk. Oh, my God. Look, when y'all was talking about the arrest, and he made the example of when they arrest him, it's gonna them white people gonna show up like them black kids did and lean on me. <laughs> Free Mr. Clark. <laughs> and what was the other what was the other example he used? It was lean on me. And oh, I forget the other example. But anyway, it was it was it was hilarious. Uh but oh man, I wish I could remember that. Anyway, but yeah, Roy, of course, went to fam. He's a rattler. And so, but it, let me get to the point. Gaines, here in Gainesville, you know, we deep behind the cotton kernel, uh, curtain. Uh, Gaines was dead. I think they died in 1847. They named this city. This city, uh, I think, was created, well, it was, quote, unquote, founded on this indigenous land in 1853, uh, incorporated in 69 during Reconstruction. So it became one of the leading centers for cotton production in the state of Florida. 14 cotton gins at one time, running out of here. So Gainesville, of course, all these white people working at the cotton gin are, wait, is it white? Gainesville has <laughs> this black population that goes back because these people here worked hard. When I uh, got to Gainesville and went over to kind of ride to the uh, convention center, the brother who was driving is from Jacksonville, but he's been living here about 25 years. He and his wife work here. And uh, they actually have their own businesses. He does an apparel business. And he was showing me while we were riding. He told me the website. I'm looking at, oh, man, he got everything. He does college apparel, including all the HBCUs. Shout out to Edwin Waters. Because y'all know Edwin Waters College is in Jacksonville. My my, my sister, uh, Claudrina Harold, who's at the University of Virginia, uh, she's from Jacksonville. So, she, you know, she always reps HBCU stuff, even though she teaches at Virginia. Uh, she got on Virginia State. She rapping Edward, rapping Edward Waters, who she grew up in the shadow of Edward Waters College. So he's got all this stuff. And we were talking about the black community in Gainesville. And because he's saying, you know, he and his wife, he said, we bought our first home here. Uh, at the time, we were in the black community, which has been black since the 19th century. But now the property values have exploded because white people have decided they're going to invade the black community now that they have colonized these other places. And like everywhere else in the country, the markets are exploding. He said it really took off, as we know, during COVID, as you talked about with real estate. So people are getting displaced. And we all have read the stories probably in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which just got its first black editor-in-chief this week on uh, how in Atlanta, these corporations are buying up all this property and turning into rental property and literally displacing folks. So he and I had that conversation on the way over to the convention center yesterday. But all this happened in Gainesville. And then in 1906, the University of Florida took root in Gainesville. And that's basically what they talk about around here. Steve Spurrier, the old ball coach and all that old mess. And of course, they call their football stadium the Swamp and, and, and the rest is history. So 
I'm mentioning all that because this city is named for a criminal, a, 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 a compassionate criminal, a criminal who wanted the indigenous people treated fairly, whatever the hell that means, but ultimately somebody who participated in the violence. Gaines actually helped pave, well, he didn't do it, the people under his command, including enslaved Africans did it, the same kind of people who built his house here. Um, uh, actually, he's from Culpeper, Virginia, believe it or not, and he also spent time in Tennessee, Alabama, before coming to Florida, then leaving and coming back. Uh, he helped, or the people who he was commanding helped pave what they call Natchez Trace, which goes through Mississippi and all that, and as Dr. Asante was talking about yesterday, um, just briefly, he didn't get into this much detail as I'm going this morning, but I want to give a sense of where we are. You know, you have the Trail of Tears, which takes a lot of people out of this region of Florida, and that's how they end up in Oklahoma. So that's where we are. That's the social structure story, but underneath that, or not even underneath it, separate from that, different from that, influencing that is the governance conversation about how these people who are experiencing this violence persist, resist, and transform. The, the observation you made, the question you raised, are we really imitating these folks in places like this and movements like this, or are we doing our own thing? It's both. And NCBS is an incredible um, example of both. Because as Bertha Maxwell Roddy commented over the years, it's almost 50 years now uh, in terms of conferences, we're at number 47 now because COVID took it virtually, you know, a couple of times. The challenge he said in recent years has been you know i don't want this to be a place where you just come and read papers see that's what academic conferences do i don't go to a whole lot of Af academic conferences my my phd is in africana studies i came out of a department that at the time was the only place in the world you get a phd in the field all that conversation is well and good. It's fine. I'm grateful, as I expressed to Dr. Sante yesterday. I said, you know, I was in law school. After my first year of law school, I sat down and I read how you're, how um, capitalism underdeveloped Black America, Manny Marable. I read Afrocentricity by Malefia Sante. And I said, ah, this is what I was looking for. And I started listening to John Clark. And then I went looking for John Henry Clark <laughs> the following year. I spent the next year in New York, the next summer in New York. And so, you know, this is Marie McKelsey, the African Center of Study and Worship, that whole piece. But I, I said all that publicly yesterday because there was a place for me to go to get graduate training because we we're building the discipline and all of it came back to NCBS. So when I well, it was on the board of NCBS back in 1992, 93, um, by then, you know, Bertha Maxwell Roddy and then William King. And then uh, later on, you know, in fact, here are the, uh, I'll just give y'all a sense of some of these names because some of these people were taught, some of y'all in here were taught by these people when you think about it. And so let me see, let me take a second here. Let's go to the conference journal. Here we go. Uh, Nick Nelson, of course, was my professor at Ohio State. Carlene Young from San Jose State. Dolores Aldridge from Emory University. These are the black women. These are names that we should know. Uh, Selassie Williams, when I joined the board, he was uh, president of NCBS. Cal State, Dominguez Hills, followed by Charles Henry. Uh, we talked about Ralph Bunch last week. Uh, Charles Henry wrote a book on Ralph Bunch, very important. He was at UCAL Berkeley. Bill Little, ancestor, uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills. Bill Little was the brother, was president when ASCAC, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, National Council of Black Studies, the Association of Black Psychologists, uh, the Council of Independent Black Institutions, Baba Hannibal Tyreek and all of them, said, you know, we should never have a conference on the same weekend. So they met 
as a kind of council, these black institutions and said, let us make sure that none of our meetings, our annual meetings take place in the same weekend because we are all part of the same thrust. It's a governance formation conversation. Shirley Weber followed Bill Little. Uh, Shirley Webb, no, 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 no. Uh, James Stewart, Dr. James Stewart, Baba James, who is here, um, father, he, he, he's at Penn State now for many years, another institution. Shirley Weber became the next president in the early aughts, like two, uh, 2002, 2006. Shirley Weber was the chair for many years of African Studies at San Diego State University. She is now the California Secretary of State. Shirley Weber is the sister who uh, forced through when she was in, uh, heading the California State Legislature uh, a couple of years ago, the task force that uh, Camila Moore and them, Dr. Moore, who are who are doing the reparation study. It was Shirley Weber. She's a former president of the National Council of Black Studies. Charles Jones, my man Charles Jones, many years at Georgia State University, then University of Cincinnati. And then Sunyata Chajwa, who at the time was uh, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Georgine Beth Montgomery was here this weekend from Clark Atlanta University. And then the current, uh, and then Amakar Shabazz, who was at UMass, as I mentioned. He, and then of course, uh, we now have as our president, this sister right here, Valerie Grimm. Dr. Valerie Grimm, good sister. You talk about work. It's something about black women and work. We talk and we have this great philosophical conversation we're all doing. And then the sisters in the room say, okay, now, by five o'clock, we got to have a framework. <laughs> it's, it's a bit, see, I understand intersectionality, understand it well. I was in law school when Kim Crenshaw wrote that article. Very important work. And we're going to let that go over here for a minute into the social structure. I know you're saying it's governance, and maybe it is. Well, but here's the problem we have. If you don't have a model, ways of knowing, if you don't have a model, cultural meaning making, if you don't have a model, movement and memory, if you don't have a model that anchors this in the we and then looks at the variations of the we, if you come in the room with these artificial categories, race, sex, class, race, sex, class, race, sex, class, gender, oh, keep that, you're going to miss the fact that whatever problems we have have to come from a point of departure of building a we. That doesn't mean we, we excise any problems. That doesn't mean we dismiss any problems. In fact, that means that we confront them even more deeply because our ultimate objective is to create community, not communities designed by demographic. Because to have intersections, you gotta have first mapped out these separate roads. So I'm laughing because we've all been in conversations when somebody said, okay, now we gotta do this. Sometimes it's women, sometimes it's men, sometimes it's children. Sometimes it's little children, one being an engineer, one being an interviewer, somebody else keeping the time and they interview an elder, an elder to them like Karen Hunter, who is like, I've been where you've been, you know, been where I've been, let's talk. And I always will talk to y'all. That's an intergenerational conversation. You're not, you know, yes, you keeping track of, okay, how many little girls in here? Okay, what did y'all call? You keeping track of the demographics, but ultimately you're looking for solutions that aren't based on just creating a hard set of numbers and saying, look what we've done. It don't get you nowhere. Now you've got basically a diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. And that's always what the social structure wants because it shifts the conversation from how do it free us to how did it keep me in power? DEI, that's what that is. How does it keep me in power? Uh, this week's Forbes magazine. Oh, well, I got it this week. Um, my man Peter over the magazine shop I've talked about before. Melody Hobson is on the cover of Forbes magazine. And she's talking about uh, 
diversity. In fact, what is it called? <laughs> the name of the this 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 issue of Forbes. It's got her picture, Millie Hobson, the sister. You know, big equity person. You know, our money. You know, married to George, what's the brother George Lucas? Okay. Right? Yeah. You know, and at the bottom, you said you seen it probably says capitalism for all. <laughs> and then she says it's not about the money as much as it is about the market it isn't about how much money are you trying to make as much as it's about can you get access to the consumer base to the people and so i'm laughing like okay and you, you're trying to do well i'm look you're trying to do well and do good at the same time no problem same tension you raised can you do it and in the magazine i'm reading the magazine laughing to myself why because there's a discussion they say you know of the 500 top American companies as index, indexed and standards and poor. Jacob Carruthers has an impression, ordinal classification, who's important by who got the most money. As you look through it, it's like 85% of those companies have some black representation. Oh, this is progress. Man. Then you see now in terms of people who make decisions, senior administrators, about 4.3% of them have some representation. But that ain't even the question. The question is, how do it free us? How does Vernon Jordan be on the board? How does Ursula Burns be on the board? How does Kenneth Chenault be in running? How does that free us? How does Stanley O'Neill, how does that free us? How, in fact, does Melanie Hobson free us? And it talks about how, you know, she's as comfortable talking to the baristas at Starbucks as she is being in the boardroom. Of course she is. Ain't nobody coming for your neck. This is not about, about people. This is about institutions. We know you want to do well. But the question is, can you do it? Can you do it in the C-suites? Can you do it in the academy? The answer is you can create space for us to have conversations. But like Bertha Maxwell Roddy showed us, you never ground who you are in who you are to other people. So, yes, you're at that space. Now, conversely, that don't mean that when we see somebody, we automatically say, see, you a sellout. Why? Because you in there. No, see, here you go. Here you go. The question should always be, how do it free us? The reason I had to move heaven and earth to get here is I have to be part of this because if I wasn't here, if it weren't for this thing, I wouldn't be here because somebody made a space. They made a space for us. Now, when I got here, I'm in this beautiful stolen land, big buildings, very nice, very nice. Cost too much money. Shout out to my sister, Melina Abdullah, who is here, of course, who came from L.A. Because here's the problem that California has. And I know you know this problem. You know, California says we're banning any state subsidized travel to those states behind the cotton curtain who are doing this anti-CRT stuff, the don't say gay stuff. You see Texas then jumped up now. They trying to say, if you're a public university, you can't teach this stuff. They, they really trying to separate the social sciences and humanities from the, the, the hard sciences. We gonna, you gonna damage our STEM program by having English professors reading all this stuff. You got it, all kind of thing. So California said, if you travel to anything there in any of those, those states that got this CRT legislation, this anti-stuff, this don't say gay stuff, this stop woke act and all that, even if it's proposed, we are not reimbursing you. Prof, broke my heart. Read an article last week. You've got black students and others, but I'm thinking mostly about the black students who want to do HBCU tours. And they're in California. Guess what state is not going to subsidize their little HBCU tours? California. So you got young people that want to visit Alabama State. Well, my man, Burtis English, who was the uh, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Africana Studies, brother been fighting with both Swift. Shout out, shout out to Burtis. Who want to visit Alabama State, who want to go see FAMU, who want to go to Clark Atlanta, who want to come up to 
to Virginia State, not Virginia State, although Glenn Youngkin is doing his best. California saying, if you're going to those states, if you, you can't come to FAM and we pay you, pay you back for the travel. So now you've got some HBCUs. Unfortunately, I saw uh, some comment about a school in the AUC. I got to confirm it. It was in the papers, but I, I want to back that up. In fact, today I'm going to talk to some of the folk who are here from the AUC, Morehouse and Clark Atlanta Spelman, who said, we got $20,000 scholarships for these young people who come from California, but now we're considering not offering it because part of it is you need to come here. Now the kids said, I want to come from LA, San Diego, Bay Area. I want to come from San Diego, uh, from, 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 from Sacramento. I want to come from North Carolina. But we can't come now because it was going to be paid for in part from this grant from the state. And the state said they're not reimbursing anybody for travel. Melina and them, the second example, Melina had to pay their own way from Cali. The plane tickets and all the thing that if you're at a university ostensibly they will reimburse you state of california said we're not reimbursing state travel so they're playing a game where can we sneak it through this way can we put it through this way because they're caught up in the federalist war between puffer fish fools like andrew desantis in this state and his state legislature his heavily gerrymandered state legislature kemp and his heavily gerrymandered state legislature in georgia and california which is doing the right thing but hurting people at the same time it costs money that's why i was trying to figure out, i gotta get there i'm not the hell i'm gonna do it i'm gonna move this over we do this okay got it got it here we're gonna do it. come here but this is the war that we're engaged in can you be in this system and at the same time fight this system well the answer is of course we have to because that's the circumstances we're in now all right so let me kind of wind this up a little bit the the, the conversation we had yesterday I'm going to mention it now. The theme this week, this this time, this year, reparations, resilience, and restorative justice, commemorating the centennial of the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. Let me get my notepad out. I took some notes yesterday because I was in a, an incredible moment. And by incredible, you know, I use that word sometimes, but I, I mean, it, because they're all incredible, really. But let me let me let me go to the page. I want to show you all who was in this because I'm just going to mention it quickly. But uh, here we go. There's a panel yesterday called "Restorative Justice Through the Preservation of Black History and Culture Sites." Uh, my sister Jocelyn Imani, out of Nashville, Tennessee, my homie. In fact, I met her because she came to do graduate study at Howard. She got a PhD. Uh, uh, under the great Elizabeth Clark Lewis, of course, who was a student, of course, of Olive Taylor. This is the genealogy, remember. Uh, Jocelyn was a student at Fisk. She went to Fisk in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, I should mention Fisk because uh, there's a sister who will be spending a lot of time at Fisk because she just got named the uh, the dean of theology at, at the Divinity School at Vanderbilt University. My sister, uh, who was the dean at um, Howard University, Yolanda Pierce, uh, she just got named this week, and uh, we were talking about it. I told her, congratulations. She said, yeah, um, I can't wait to get to Nashville because I'm going to be at Vanderbilt, but I'm going to spend a lot of time with the students at Fisk. And I said, don't forget Tennessee A&I. So I told my brother, Tennessee State, he was there to connect with her. Jocelyn walked into my sister's office when Gussie was working at Fisk as an undergrad, and uh, she became one of Gussie's adopted young people. And so when she showed up at Howard, she came to my office and said, your sister told me to come over here and you supposed to take care of me. I said, look, you here now. I said, what am I going to do? Jocelyn is now, uh, works at the Trust for Public Land. 
national organization investing deep resources in, as she talked about yesterday, preserving black spaces. And there was a conversation that was held yesterday. These are the four discussants. I'm gonna save the, save the most important one for last. Uh, here you have Kate Brown, Trust for Public Land, Florida office. Stacey Bertrand, who works for Duke Energy, they've invested resources. Again, can you fight the system and be in the system? We have to. So they're, they're putting, this is sister here, Stacey Bertrand, we're gonna get some of this, y'all paying y'all light bill, energy bill. Okay, we're gonna get some of this money and put it into this exercise. Uh, Johanna Thompson, uh, Jay, who is working with the Florida Restorative Justice Association, the sister, and then this sister right here. Oh, my goodness. That is Lizzie Robinson Jenkins, who directs the Real Rosewood Foundation Incorporated. Why do I mention her? She's the one whose mother in IT survived Rosewood. And when I tell you, Ms. Jenkins walked us through that thing yesterday, the terror of Rosewood, she said, people think they didn't fight back. Oh, she started talking about how when the Klan met and got drunk and decided they're going to come over there and destroy Rosewood. She said, they came down the rut road. was one way in and one way out of Rosewood. They called it a rut road. She said, y'all know what a rut road world is? Like, young people don't know. See, that's where you got the little Model T and, and, and the tracks leave a rut in the, in the ground. So that's the road. She said, they came in there and the brothers had made a call for everybody with the strap to come. She said, that's the story they never wanted in the newspaper, how many white people they killed when they come into the first time to destroy Rosewood. And she talked about the white sheriff that had saved people, including her IT. She talked about how they had come through and the black people had gotten out. She went through the whole history and she talked about persevering. She talked about the fact that she has been on this battle because her mama told her, you got to tell this story. And when she went to a meeting and was confronted by some racist who tried to stop her and this kind of thing, she went home and told her mom. Her mom said, okay, sorry, calm down, take a breath, sit down, relax. You getting yourself together? Okay, when you get yourself together, go win my fight. <laughs> In other words, I understand. I understand. I live my whole life black in Florida. I understand that. Now, as you get yourself together, now go back in there and fight. And when she told these stories about placemaking, when she told these stories about how they survived, the question then we have to ask ourselves is, and I'm just looking over here now because I'm, I'm looking at the notes I took and I'm trying to look at them and think about it at the same time. So I probably just need to think about it. She said, when I went back, because they haven't built the thing in Rosewood, as Jocelyn was explaining now. They're putting resources in the place where they ended up after they left Rosewood, because Rosewood now is like 95% white. And she said they put a marker up there, and Ms. Jenkins would say they put the marker up, and they didn't shout up the marker like about 16, 17 times, like they do the Emmett Till marker. So they put the actual land, because the trust for public land is able to invest. Duke Energy is able to uh, to invest. Uh, Kate Brown, who works for the Florida Office uh, of Public Land, has been able to support, in spite of all this other stuff that people got in the headlines, after saying it's seen by him. They have land that Ms. Jenkins is in her family that they've been able to create and persist. In fact, Johnson was walking through some other places like that. In Newark, there's a Nat Turner Park. Johnson is involved in that. There are, there are cemeteries. We talked about cemeteries yesterday, including one where people are buried here in Florida, which is now a public land and a private land. And Ms. Jenkins was saying they're trying to stop people from having access. And she said, as a white dude, just wrote a book 
on Rosewood who uh, using me got in and now he's talking with the person who owns the land and now all of a sudden we can't get in but he can again again the academy a lot of people writing books on stuff and doing scholarship they're doing it for themselves so if you came into that and you sneak around the edges of a place like this in fact he was supposed to be on this panel but apparently he didn't come and the and jingle was like you know how black people can say less like I say, every time you sip their water somebody brought him up she was like and then somebody said, what is it, Miss? And I said, she done told y'all with her face. She ain't got to say nothing else. Then, of course, she then she said something else. But at any rate, the point is, these are not our friends. These are uh, hustlers. In other words, let me not let me not go too far down that road, because one of the reasons we have Nubia and we have narrative, one of the reasons we do this week after week after week after week is to always be in connection and build with those for whom that is not the agenda. And the agenda is not at the university. As I said yesterday on the panel I was on, which I'm gonna talk about in a minute here as we wind up, the here is called the, the one that's on the theme with Melina, uh, my man Dexter Blackman, who is at Morgan State University. He had a good conversation. And there's Ifatayo, it was the four of us on this panel yesterday afternoon, debating the, uh, defeating the attack on Africana Black Studies, building resilience, resistance, and reparations. My basic theme was clear, three words. And then I, we talked more, I said, give it away. <laughs> See, stop trying to build academic prestige at the university. But of course, I didn't have to say that out of my mouth because I was two steps into the conference venue when I got stopped by a young sister who says, I never miss on Saturdays. Then a brother came up and said, they ain't at the car tell Prof Hunter how much I love her every day. And then I never miss y'all. Then somebody else came up. I'm talking about one by one by one by two by three by everybody. With the president of uh, NCBS, <laughs> when she introduced the panel yesterday, uh, Dr. Dr. Grimm said, Dr. Grimm said, I'm in my class at Indiana University. And as I'm teaching, the young brother puts his hand up and said, I understand what you're saying, but what does Dr. Carr think? She said, what? She said, like, like somebody coming home and saying, I understand uh, what your cooking is, uh, wife, but uh, what does the chef down the street think? <laughs> you eating at this house. So she was joking, but her point was, this is how us building these spaces that aren't grounded in the academy are finding their way into these spaces that were built to break out of the academy. Rather than just try to break out, why don't you build the separate thing first? And just do what we do. This is the clean glass of water. I saw it in real time at the National Council of Black Studies, and I was so happy mm. because this is what we are doing. But it's what we're doing. Um, it was Heil Hydra. Hail Hydra, sure was. Hail Hydra. Hydra. And give him the key. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I couldn't let that go because it was bothering me too. I was like, I was in the conversation. Yeah. Um, a Nubian brother, uh, Garrick for for Garrick, Garrick for real. Yeah, you know, Garrick has been here a lot. Yeah, no, he's a Nubian. He just um posted that Randall Robinson may transition. Oh, that's and, and what what is wild about that is you know I'm rereading the debt as part of my form. I'm rereading the debt because I want to really be able to have an understanding that's it. of this conversation. That's it. And I literally oh. was reading it this morning 
and uh, I saw someone in Nubia posted, okay. and I was like, let me confirm it. It's nowhere in the news right now. No. Did no, you ever able to confirm? I wasn't able to confirm it through a news outlet, but if I, if Garrett Faria said it, uh, I'm going to say that he's reliable. Damn it. He's a Nubian, right? I'm not, I'm going to uh, yeah, trust is, yeah. I'm going to trust him over CNN. That's what I'm going to say. You might not see it on CNN. The reason I say it is because- Eventually. You know, Event well maybe because he's not, but the, yeah no uh, he's, he's I think he's a big enough figure that it will it will make the national news eventually yeah maybe the New York Times will do a whole bit I mean yeah. but yeah he doesn't you think yes yes and we're gonna make sure that they do how about that how about having this conversation right now we'll make sure exactly. that uh, New York Times and all of the news well, out the Times will do it yeah but they don't know what they don't know what news is anyway so we're gonna tell them. Facts. Yeah, oh, Randall so Robinson good. is uh, everything. Uh, everything. And he's the blueprint. Everybody that's coming after him is just grifting, in my opinion. Y'all shouldn't even try to do any conversations around reparations. It doesn't center Randall Robinson's deep study of of us, Africa, the 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 history, and all of the things. Uh, you know, it, it's like everyone's reinventing the wheel. The wheel was rolling. It, 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 and, and in many ways, he just connected with the. Well, I was gonna say, and he and he was operating in this notion of like work came before me, which he's in very fact, clear about. Yeah, so I, no, I mean, it's just that's just hit. Obviously, it's gonna hit now. Of course, when his brother made transition, Max, it was everywhere because Max was on TV, first black and anchor. Yes, that's right, that's right. And so years ago, but it really, you know what? When you, when you just said that, I was like. That's why I hadn't heard from him. I reached out to him a couple of weeks ago because, you know, I said, man, it's been a long time and I hadn't heard from him. Now I know why. I was just concerned because what what, what was he? What, 80, 81. That's not that old. Well, I was concerned. Well, I hadn't heard from him in a while. Black men, yeah. No, I'm just like, our, yeah, that it's... Well, well, he he was he was very active, as we know, in his uh, the book he wrote, "Quitting America." His wife Hazel is from the Caribbean, so he he had left, but he was coming back and forth. He was teaching at Penn State Law School. He was still very active, and then he went silent. Now I'm thinking it may have been something that had been emerging over the last few years, where he just kind of went from public life, because Randall Robinson, of course, as you, as we know, well, that the debt was. In fact, I got my how do you think Philadelphia Freedom Schools. This is my I got my Freedom Schools joined on. That was the first book we read in the year 2000. The first book I picked was The Death, Randall Robinson. And he came and met with those students. And he was so impressed by these high school students who had read his book, about 200 of them, that in his next book, The Reckoning, What Blacks Owe to Each Other, this is the foundation, along with Jacob Carruthers and reminding somebody of the governance conversation. Who are we to each other? The name of that book that he wrote after The Death was The Reckoning, What Blacks Owe to Each Other. That was, that was the company said, okay, now The Death, that's what they owe to us. The reckoning, and he wrote about us. He wrote about freedom schools. He wrote about how that really showed him these young, like those young people that interviewed you, the same kind of young people interviewed him. And he, he said, and he, he's right. He said, I, I walked in this room and you had all these students, mostly African, African US, Afro Latino, but also Asian, a few white students. And they was like, uh, on page 236, you said such and such. On page five, you said, he said, these young people read my book. Not only had they read it, they had questions. He said, this is what's showing me. And then he said, as I was driving back to the airport, no, to the train, he'd come from New York. He said, uh, this young brother who was a teacher, who had you know, done the program, he said, at some point, they're going to cut the funds. And of course, ultimately, they did. We persist. We're still there, but we don't have it like we had it because 
public investment. This is why getting the right people in place. But now we have a, re a new renewal because one of the young people in the room that night, Isaiah Thomas, my man, 16 years old, Frankfurt High School, is now on the city council of the city of Philadelphia. And he's the one fighting for asbestos abatement. He's the one fighting for curriculum. He's the one saying, you're going to give money to the public schools. Just He was one of those teenagers that Randall Robinson, <laughs> this is how you do the genealogy. Randall Robinson. This is, this is how you pass the baton. This is how you pass the baton. There it is right there. That the baton has to be passed. So I'm I'm, I'm going to uh, there are only a couple of things I do want to mention before. Okay, I, and, and I just want to say, you know, under normal circumstances, I would wait until a so-called reputable news outlet confirmed it. But yeah. we're in different times. Uh, we have to trust ourselves, and yeah. you know, this is totally out of the realm of what I would normally do. Um, but it feels right to not center and wait for validation no. from <laughs> from no. them. No. I'm going to lean on us to know more than they do no and question we need to start to do that uh no and, question you know no question well let's let, let, let's wrap for a minute then okay. in just a second i don't want to take much, much more time i'm thanking you to do that because again robinson has entered as an ancestor i hope we will see it in social structure media like you said i expect that we will but his significance and maybe we'll talk next week more about randall robinson his significance out of richmond virginia he and his brother max new growing up with arthur ash and others in richmond in fact, I asked them yesterday, some of the people who are here from Richmond, I said, they took all them statues down. They said, yeah. I said, did they take half Arthur Ashe down? No, he's still there. I said, why can't you get a man a whole statue? Arthur Ashe was at the end of Confederate Row in downtown Richmond. But uh, just from the torso up with a tennis racket in his hand. All these guys grew up together, of course. And of course, and if you pull on that, you get the history of black tennis, which, of course, Althea Gibson and them at those black training school, uh, tennis schools. Um, but Randall Robinson of course, went off undergraduate, graduate degree, uh, law degree rather, his book, Defending the Spirit, you can read it, he writes for himself. Uh, Robinson worked on the staff of uh, Congressman Charles Diggs out of Detroit, whose family owned funeral homes. He was the congressman, the black congressman who attended the trial of Emmett Till. Um, Robinson worked for him. This is He was very interested in Africa. So by the late 60s, early 70s, you'd have the Congressional Black Caucus comes into existence, the Africa policy being driven. Some of that was by a staffer, a young staffer named Randall Robinson, who would leave there and create a pan-African lobbying firm and lobbying institution called Trans-Africa. That was Randall Robinson. Um, Danny Glover, for many years, chaired that board. So many other people traveled the globe. Uh, his, his, his written output, of course, including the debt, the reckoning, uh, defending the spirit. He wrote a book, another book, Randall Robinson, the only one we did freedom school. We did two of his books and he came to again back. He was at the university of Maryland, Eastern shore that time. Uh, young Lashara Jackson, who was about maybe seven, eight years old, presented him with the freedom school t-shirt and our welcome. And of course she grown woman now. Um, uh, um, and Jamele Anderson's daughter and, uh, Anshere, uh, Hines, who is now directing for the center of black educator development, uh, Baba Sharif, our friend, Baba Sharif, um, he, El Mecki, uh, she now does the Freedom Schools stuff. Now they, you know, they were all kids when Rand Robinson came back because we read his book, An Unbroken Agony, on Haiti, because he was part of the Haiti work. Uh, you know, not without contradictions and complications. It's difficult work because Rand Robinson walked in both worlds. He walked in that policy world. He walked at the highest levels of social structure work. He's a lawyer. He's a policymaker. He worked in quote-unquote insider, but he was also an independent institution builder. You don't come out of that kind of work unscathed. Robinson fought 
his whole life. And now as an ancestor, I mean, I might have to sit with that one in a minute because of that brother. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wind to a close and I'm going to get over to the conference. The first round of panels has already been there, but I want to just mention a couple of other things. And we'll save the rest for next week. So glad, and I'll just use this as the point of entry to make this final couple of points I'm going to make. Uh, on the plane here, I was catching up on the reading of the last of the last couple of issues of National Geographic that I hadn't had a chance to, to go through them. This is the March issue. The cover, uh, Going Home, is on returning treasures to where they came from, isn't closing museums, it's opening new doors, whatever. I don't read it for that. What I read it for is this is a map of all the places where Europeans colonized and took things to their museums, you see. And then the conversation turns into all the stuff that is being taken back and how black people, among others, are all the indigenous people, they still got people's bodies in these damn museums. You understand? Here are the criminals that took the so-called Benin bronzes out of West Africa. That stuff is beginning to be returned. So important to have this conversation. Um, this is a, a picture of Oxford University's Pitt Rivers Museum, where they just got cataloged all the stuff, thieves. Anyway, but they claim they're not stealing. But of course, they I mean, you know what it is. I just want to show you one more picture from this, and I'm going to go to the other one, which I think is more important. This is in Fumbon, Fumban, Cameroon. They built an actual kind of looking like a spider and a double-headed snake going to their form of government to, to take this stuff back because this throne that the current ruler sits on is a replica. Why? Because years ago, um, his great-grandfather, who is actually pictured in this behind him, got pressured by the Germans. You can see there. Got pressured by the Germans to send the original throne to Germany, which is where it is. They said, we want that back. In fact, maybe we'll swap you out with the replica. That's what the Germans are saying now, because the pressure's coming from outside. You got to take this stuff back. That's why, because it ain't just a throne. The spirit of our people are in that. You're going to send that back, bro. And so that kind of thing. But this one is the one I thought was fascinating. This is the most recent National Geographic, the cover story, 8 billion, the population paradox. China's population is going to shrink here. <laughs> Look at this graphic. The rise of Africa. So all the people talking about indigenous people and ADOS and all that, understand that it's connections that will get us to where we want to go for humanity. Two-thirds of global population growth between now and 2050 will come from sub-Saharan Africa. Nigeria is forecast to become the world's third most populous country by then with a median age under 23, by 2050. They're saying there might be by 2100 as many as, wait for it, 8, 80 million? No, 8, not a misstep. No, I'm sorry, I said 8. I should have said 7. 700 million people in Nigeria. You better wave at these Negroes. <laughs> you better wave at these Black people in Nigeria. This is fascinating to me. In fact, that's the lead article. In Nigeria, by 2050, Nigeria is expected to squeeze 377 million people into a country less than one-tenth the size of the United States. What will life look for a child growing up in Africa's most populous country? What the writer says is that it will be like if everybody in the U.S. right now moved to Texas and Oklahoma. Every human being, that would be Nigeria. <laughs> now, what do you do with that in terms of a world where 
And in fact, anyway, I'll talk about this maybe next week in East Africa because anyway, I was on the plane reading that. So I landed and we, I got to where I was in. And I finally got a chance to sit with, among others, um, two, just, this couple has really done so much. Uh, Baba Akinyeli Umoja and Mama Amanada Umoja, who, of course, among so many other things, are the founders of Colombo. Y'all know, I talk about Colombo a lot. They were talking about it yesterday. You be on there talking about Colombo. This is the independent school, the African-centered school, one of them in Atlanta. So they came down from Atlanta, Kilambo Academic and Cultural Institute. Y'all can go look it up, kilamboschool.com. Y'all make sure y'all do this. Mama Aminata right there. And uh, uh, Mama Tashia, who is the co-director, uh, the director really. And, 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 and of course, Mama Aminata is the founder. But in talking with them, we talked about these independent institutions. So many folk in Nubia, so many in narrative, so many as part of this movement. What we're doing, we are joining movements that are already in progress just like randall robinson joined a movement where you had chokwe lumumba where you had um where you had queen mother moore where you had kelly house and isaiah dickerson randall robinson in the year 2000 drew upon that and kept the momentum going forward so you didn't know you know without randall robinson and that you don't have tanazi coates who is already as a child been brought into the movement through paul coates through uh nation house who were very close to uh baba uh, uh baba ak as we call him uh, all of this converges. These are continuations and they in, and they exist in governance formations. These are not dictated by grants and university prestige and publications that come from out. No, this is who we know. So I'll end with this. As we were getting ready to leave last night, Baba AK and uh, uh, Mama Aminata getting ready to leave. Baba AK said, you got a minute, come out here. Look, you got field order. You call me by my African name, which you've known for decades at this point. And we share students. Some of the students have gone to Kemet with us. Shout out, by the way, to everybody who was at the Kemet meeting. Uh, we had our first meeting. Uh, Dr. Beatty picked people through their paces. We're going to Kemet. Um, we took one of the Quilombo young people who then graduated from Quilombo and then went on to finish her education and then came to high out of high school, came to Howard and now has graduated from Howard. We took her to Kemet in 2019 um we he said coming from in i said so i came up to the car he went in the trunk he said i got something for you i said what is it bible and we're going to talk about this next week this is the special issue volume 23 number one and two of the journal souls founded by manning marable but they didn't do this electronic version they only got a few of these printed. He saved you one, Baba AK. This is the special issue on Matulu Shakur. We're going to talk about Matulu Shakur next week. Matulu Shakur, and by the way, he told me that there are a handful of them. Baba Matulu is uh, Dr. Shakur, who is best known, unfortunately, as the quote unquote stepfather, so to speak, of Tupac. We're going to talk about this next week because that, you know. Uh, as he writes, uh, AK, who was a special editor along with Susan Rosenberg of this issue. Here's the, uh, most of it is the writings of uh, Motulu Shakur. That's the table of contents, free to land, free to people, the political significance of Dr. Shakur's legacy. And I'm talking more about this next week. I'm just mentioning it as we come to a close today. He is now out, political prisoner for many years. This is a chronicle of his life, a sample of his writing, and then a compendium of those who have been touched by his life, have been touched by his work, and have been touched, more importantly,
by the arc of the struggle. That includes our sister who writes an article, Revolutionary Doctor, Revolutionary Lawyer. You see, because Matula Shakur's lawyer was a young brother named Chokwe Lumumba. So Rakia Lumumba <laughs> writes a piece in here because she was a little girl in the courtroom while her father was defending Matulu Shakur. See, the bad wig wearing governor of Mississippi, and we talked about this yesterday extensively. We're sitting there talking because some Mississippians here about this whole attempt to take over the city of Jackson. And uh, Baba AK was talking about uh, Antar, as he calls him, as we call him, those of us who know him because, you know, who, the, the social structure knows his choke way, remember the mayor of Jackson. He and his sister, we were talking about them and in the context of how they're fighting in Jackson and going to win that fight. But Tate Reeves don't know nothing about this. In fact, he would call this guy an anti-American and a communist and a whatever, a, a terrorist, all that stuff. Because, of course, the reason that this brother was locked up for decades was they accused him and convicted him of helping Asada Shakur, the Shakur family. In fact, we'll talk more about him. As I said, I'm not going to go into it deeply today because I'm about to get off. We'll, we'll, we'll close for a moment. But I wanted to just end with this because the history of this brother, Dr. Matulu Shakur, who finally got released from prison. This is the article that Akinyele wrote as the editor, straight ahead, the life of resistance of Matulu Shakur. Matulu Shakur from Baltimore. He was born Gerald Williams in Maryland, 1950. Um, he was deeply impacted by the murder of Emmett Till as a child, and he was 15 years old when Malcolm was killed. He moved in circles that connected him to Herman Ferguson, who was a lieutenant of Malcolm X. He found his way to New York, where he was deeply influenced by the Revolutionary Action Movement. Uh, of course, uh, Baba Max Stanford is still around. Ram, the head of Ram know him well you know he came to philly he came back to philly max stanford's afraid what is it we will return in the whirlwind i think it's his memoir i'm trying to remember from 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 memory muhammad ahmad of course is his name now um he was part of the oceanville browns ocean hill brownsville struggle independent education matuli shakur um and here we go this is what i'm going to talk about next week let me read what bob ak says here on page seven of his article Gerald, at the time, attended a gathering of 500 Black nationalists in Detroit on March 30th and 31st. Next week, we're going to talk about this. 1968, along with Herman Ferguson and Connie Hicks, the gathering, titled the Black Government Conference, was organized by the Detroit-based Malcolm X Society. The Malcolm X Society was organized by the associates of Malcolm X, attorney Milton Henry, and his brother Richard Henry. We've talked about this in terms of reparations. We don't know him as Milton Henry and Richard Henry now. Them. We know them as Baba Amari uh, Obadeli, Amari Abu Bakari Obadeli, and uh, Baba Gaidi um, Obadeli. Amari Abakari Obadeli, of course, the first president, provisional president of the Republic of New Africa. That's why they ended up in Jackson in the first place, y'all. Oh, we're going to talk about this history next week. Some of these cats still around. My man, General Rashid, is down the street, down, keep going down the peninsula in Miami. General Rashid, who was part of the Republic of New Africa and will be to the day he dies and then becomes an ancestor. All of that, I said I was going to talk about him, so I'm not going to get too much deeper into this. I'm just going to mention that um, that meeting 
The conference was held. They had a planning meeting in January 1969 in Detroit with the National Officers of the Ocean Hill Brownsville Project, independent black control of the schools in Brooklyn. And they got pushed back from Albert Shanker, the teachers union. They say they racist, all this kind of thing. That is one of the seeds that feeds into the tributaries of the black studies movement. But then they met at New Bethel Baptist Church, pastored by C.L. Franklin. Y'all go back in the archive. We talked about this meeting where the police shot at them and this kind of thing. All this ties together. And then, uh, in fact, let me stop there. I'll just mention one other thing. And then this is a tease for next week. So tell you, folks, we're going to go into this in detail. By the time that he has changed his name, here he is in 1976, Dr. Shakur in the People's Republic of China, 1976. Here's another picture of them in the People's Republic of China. Why? Because these revolutionary internationalists are about building coalitions among oppressed people, non-white people, white people of good faith, but coming out of governance formations. And he is known as a healer. Matulis Shakur is known as a healer. Ironically, he's been released because he's ill now. He's raising money. In fact, one of the things Baba AK said is that one of the reasons they did a few print number is because they're using it as a fundraiser to help him because these Europeans and their lackeys based on trumped up charge, of course, and everything. They kept this man locked up for decades. He'd been locked up most of his life. He just got out. In fact, they were planning this before they knew he was going to be released because they struggled to free them. And of course, I think about all of the people who are working to fight and free political prisoners. The call is to free them all, mm. all of them, because Bloody Lounge, great documentary that just came out, you know, uh, my man Kwame Hassan Jeffries out of Ohio State, you know, Leonard Jeffries' nephew, the brother of the current minority leader at the House of Representatives. Um, they all in it is great. H. Rap Brown still in federal supermax prison. Yeah. Behind some old BS that they said he did in Atlanta, which he absolutely didn't do. All trumped up charges, recanted witnesses. This is the war that people paid the price for, for us to run around now and put red, black, and green on and get Netflix contracts to make documentaries. I'm not saying all of that is unimportant. It's important, but never forget these people still walk the earth. And unlike Randall Robinson, when they make transition, many of them will do it behind bars because they put their whole thing, their whole existence on the line for us. So it's not cute. It's not cute to try to write books about them and talk about them and then they still in. So we'll talk more about Matuba Shakur next week. Thank you, Prof. Oh my goodness. So, um, and safe travels. You Did you mention Reverend C.L. Franklin? Yes. You got him. You got him. Hold on. No, no, no. This is uh let me let me uh do this. Let me share my screen because uh, that is weird uh as well as me reading. I don't even know why I'm reading the the dead. I didn't this is too it's no the ancestors are real, they real. I don't know so nobody said yes. I'm, I'm gonna share this. Um stop playing. That's right. Today is her birthday. Did you did you know that? Had, hadn't thought about it until right this minute. So this is where we end. This is this is how it works, Prof. The ancestors are real. Yeah. There's a reason my I hit on C.L. Franklin because General Rashid tells that story. Rashid was there. They shot up the church she grew up in. You hear those early recordings of her at the piano? It's at New Bethel. They went to war. Matulu Shakur, she know Matulu Shakur. They, together, they ain't together yet because he ain't answered. This is too much, but it's, it means the ancestors are real. Yeah, now we are. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. No uh, question. To be safe out there in them screens. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, uh, with the peoples, and uh, I'm so grateful that that we have this space. I'm grateful to you uh, immensely. I, I can't even. Name. 
I can't express it enough. I love you. Love you. I love you. And everybody, listen, I'm going to tell everybody here, you said hello because I made the promise to more people that didn't count yesterday. (laughs) I'm going to tell Karen in live tomorrow. So some of them in here right now. So I'm just telling you. (laughs) And I'm going to put my hands lovingly on some of the Nubians. I'll see them as well this weekend. So, you know. Oh, wait a minute. What? No, that shouldn't say less, but yeah, in them streets as well. But um, it's magical. Everybody that has come here has come here with intention. Somebody, you know, when you said the the brother walked up to you with no no melanin and said he was a Nubian, people still are like, why why are they here? And you know, I have to say to to treat people poorly because of their skin tone mm. makes no sense to me. That's at right. all to, to to judge folk because of their race just seems a little bit wrong and yes. so uh if we want to create the world we want to live in it has to start with us in our humanity and being humans that's right loving uh and if folk have nefarious i said i treat nubia like my child you know what are your intentions what are your intentions you know i do gather i do have conversations of course have to. no it's not just willy-nilly but uh, what I'm not going to do is judge somebody uh, the way I might be judged. No question. Because, and and I'm not going to change what you're saying. See, that's the thing. That's now, it. We're not considering nobody. Saying. Yeah, we're not considering your feelings. No at question. All. Stay that's, focused. That's, you know, that's it. That's it. We we gonna we gonna operate in the trueness of love. And that's right. uh, you know, if you want to be here, you want to do something nefarious. We got ancestors right now that you will not be able to contend with. And can't uh, contend with them. Either we believe that or we don't. That's like, how I opened yesterday. Yes. But whatever Andrew DeSantis is doing, Harry and Harriet Moore and Mary McLeod Bethune, boy, you ain't even got no ancestors can do. You just go and do what you're doing. We're going to keep pouring our clean glass of water. Amen. And there she is right there. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And let's send her happy birthday to this civil rights warrior who no uh, bailed Angela Davis out of jail and put her own money up to make sure the civil rights movement continued. Who, who uh, raised money. And when Huey Newton wrote the letter, she wrote, they thanked her because they were trying to get Norton. Like I said, Angela Davis, she said, I will write the check. And then she sent a letter, said, I'm sorry, I can't come to this benefit concert. And she signed it, Queen Mother of Soul. See, the, the social structure calls it the Queen of Soul. No, 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 no. The gut, she said, I'm the Queen Mother of Soul. <laughs> so, yes, she is. <laughs> Happy birthday. And I, I love you. Dr. I love you too. I, I see, see, I see y'all tomorrow, Monday, yes. Tuesday, Wednesday. Yes. All the day.